we can't just be too nice about women's sport. There's lots of things that many people, myself included, feel passionately about, about women's sport and the opportunities that that brings. But we also need to recognise the changes and the impact that driving commercial revenue has. Now, there's choices in that. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. I'm your host Owen Connolly taking you through another weekly wrap of stories from in and around the sports industry and in fact this week uh, it's a Women's Sports Weekly wrap uh, to tie in with Women's Sports Week from Sports Pro and two circles. There's tons of stuff going on across the Sports Pro Media website and uh, other podcasts and all the rest of it. Um, delighted to be joined from Two Circles by their MD of Ventures, Annie Panther. Hello, Annie. Hi, Aaron. Hi, everyone. Thanks very much. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here today. Tom Bassam, unfortunately, isn't with us. He's had some last minute technical difficulties, so he has had to step out. But yeah, just to give you a sense of what is going on across Women's Sports Week, um, we have all kinds of features on everything from sponsorship unbundling to gender pay disparity. Uh, media representation, the role of tech, uh, culture-driven commercial change. We've got leaders from across women's sport and female leaders in sport contributing to a whole range of those features and got Q&As and, and all sorts. Um, we were, Annie, meant to be doing this in person. We were. At a, a special event, um, but unfortunately the British weather has intervened in, in unprecedented fashion and we've had to cancel because of extreme heat, which is unsettling enough in itself but um hopefully that event will take place at another time um more clement time and uh i'm sure we will have a very interesting conversation anyway on some of the um broad challenges and the, the opportunities that are available to women's sport a bit of housekeeping before we start and typically we're talking about women's sport and some bloke has to make it all about himself <laughs> this is going to be my last podcast as uh as host, um, I think I mentioned it in passing towards the end of last week's show. We were meant to be going to the end of July, but best laid plans and all that. So Tom will be back next week uh, with a new host, George Breer, who some of you may know from the Sports Pro events content team. You may have seen him at, at Sports Pro Live and, and around about the place. But anyway, that's that for now. Annie, there's a whole range of um, issues that we're going to cover in the next kind of 40 minutes or so. But just to get a sense of, of your background, first of all, and of the role as well that Two Circles has been playing uh, in putting together some of this content for Women's Sports Week. You're coming at this from quite a, a range of, of different angles. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Owen. And yeah, really disappointed that we're doing this in uh, doing this virtually rather than, than in person, following what I think would have been a, a great event this morning. As you say, a combination of the British climate and probably the British infrastructure failed us failed us today but looking forward to to finding a date to to hold that event again uh, very very soon so yeah i guess i do i do have a a unique or a kind of slightly different journey into where i now sit in commercial sport as a former athlete myself so i was part of the england and, and great britain hockey team up until um 2012 post the the 2012 2012 games and then had a journey through investment banking so goldman sachs as a trader into into TRM, the sports sponsorship sales agency, which was acquired by Two Circles at the at the end of last year. So 
guess in my current role, I, I bring multiple perspectives into into the things that we look at across a broad range of, of women's sport and that we'll touch on today. What was your experience as an athlete? I mean, you you were never, you performed at an elite level, but you were never professional, is my understanding. You, you kind of were a student athlete, as they call it in the US, but that was obviously a very different experience here. Through UK Sport, who I now sit on the, on the board of UK Sport, we're fortunate enough in, in this country to receive funding via the National Lottery and, and via the Treasury to invest into Olympic and Paralympic sport. Sure. So I was fortunate enough for um, a significant amount of my, my career to, to be a full-time athlete. And I think this is uh, the nuances around what the word professional means. So professional in the sense that <laughs> I received money to be a full-time athlete that allowed me to have a roof over my head and to feed and clothe myself, but certainly didn't create me any kind of savings in the bank account. So and certainly not professional from a what we would mean when we talk about professional sports in terms of sports that are able to be self-sufficient through the commercial revenues that they that they generate yeah so very fortunate to have been in that position to be to be a full-time athlete but really really am passionate about women now being able to have a a choice of a career which is actually a career and is and it's professional and doesn't leave them at the age of late 20s, 30s, whenever they decide to to retire, really on a cliff edge of, I have, I have kind of a very, very quick transition from being an athlete into needing to go into another career, which is going to effectively you know, pay for a roof over your head. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's an important distinction, I think, on, in both senses. And, and, you know, as you say, I think we'll, we'll probably unpack some of those details, some of those issues as, as we go. What kind of health do you feel like the women's sports industry is in at the moment? Um, let's take a UK focus, first of all, but I do know, obviously, the two circles uh, do have clients over in the US. And I think that that point of comparison will be interesting, too. Um, but where would you say, where do you think progress has been made since London 2012, for example? Oh, I mean, huge progress since since London 2012. And actually, I think we're at the cusp of a huge decade ahead of women's sport for, for growth. And that's, it's so, and it's probably an overused phrase to talk about being on an inflection point or a crest of the wave. But I think if you look around you now, there are multiple kind of examples of where women's sport is really starting to to generate cut through and I think a lot of that that we're seeing is in the growth of what have been traditionally to go back to that word professional men's men's sports we'll undoubtedly talk about it more through the, the course of this podcast but the women's euros and where the women's euros is now if you look where cricket is if you look where rugby is so to go back to where we started this conversation I played hockey because as an eight-year-old sports mad girl, I watched the Barcelona Olympics. I loved team sports. We won a bronze medal in hockey. Went to a new school that September where hockey was the main sport and it was kind of like path set in some ways. And that was the time when I saw women's team sport on TV was the Olympic Games and the Commonwealth Games. That is, if we think about, if I put myself in the shoes of being that eight-year-old girl this year and what I would have seen on TV in terms of seeing female role models, women's sports to aspire to. I'd have seen the Women's Cricket World Cup. I'd have seen the Women's Six Nations sitting in a new, in a new window. I'd have seen the reformatted women's 
Champions League. I'd be seeing the Women's Euros, the hundreds, yes, the, yet to come, the, not to mention the WSL and the growth of that. It's totally different, different position. And it's going to take time for the effect of that to really flow through into all the things. And, and it's so multifactorial in terms of how we think about the growth of women's sport. It's not it's really easy to get focused in and narrow on this is just about commercial growth or this is just about giving more visibility and broadcasters buying in more. There's a whole virtuous cycle that, that goes into growing women's sport. And a lot of that is also around the, the driving participation and driving that base of the, the pyramid so that we generate more talent coming up through to the elite end of, of sport, which is where a lot of us kind of make judgments on where, you know, on, on, on the development and growth of, of sport. Mm. But that's, that, that's done a fascinating thing or, you know, there could be consequences that are really, um, really profound over the next few years when you think that, as you say, the onus has shifted from sports that received Olympic funding that were not kind of commercial powerhouses outside of the Olympic movement, but were delivering success for Team GB um, and we're delivering success in terms of participation numbers and and so on relative to other sports to the big three in this country, football, cricket and rugby union that have huge resources and, and can create a professionalised version of team sport in, in a really very different way from some of those other sports where you had talent going through. I mean, what, what, what do you think the implications of that are? Is it is there going to be a rising tide that lifts all boats here or are we going to see changes in in what the challenges are and, and, and what the landscape is? So it's a great question. And yeah, there's two views on it, isn't there? There's the, there's the optimistic view that we're going to grow the size of the pie effectively of girls and, and women participating and also crucially audiences in across women's sport. And then there's a the more pessimistic view that, that the big three is, as you called them, are going to effectively cannibalise other other women's sport. I think probably the truth is a bit of a mixture between the two, um, but it's also dependent on the actions that collectively are taken both across Olympic and Paralympic sport and also across the professional sports. And there is a real opportunity here. Make sure that we're focused on growing the size of the pie effectively, giving more choices. So you know, giving giving girls... And, and women the choice as to what sports they which sports they choose to participate in rather than there being a really narrow choice for girls relative to boys of a similar age mm. what are some of the things that you see around women's sports properties at the moment that you maybe are lagging or maybe things that need to be worked on or lessons that need to be taken on board at this stage to to kind of drive some of that uh, some of that progress we start thinking about this virtual cycle, virtuous cycle of growth in in women's sport, then we can start to start. We can start to unpick some of the areas of of where there's both strengths and and areas for development. So, I feel you always you've always got to start with the product. So there's huge tailwinds behind women's sport at the moment, but ultimately we need to create the right products that engages audiences with that particular sport. So the product and the marketing of that product are absolutely central. When we get that right, we start to see that we get more visibility. So we get more interest from broadcasters, we get more media coverage. And by the way, when I talk about product, that also includes the 
standard of competition, the standard of what we see on the field of play. Once we've got that platform for visibility, we can start to generate growth in audiences, audience growth and, and, and growth in audience engagement. That then leads to further external investment, be it through sponsors, be it through broadcasters willing to pay more, be it through other external in investment PE, which then gives choices to rights holders as to what they do with that additional external investment. That can then be redeployed into investing back into the product and back into the marketing of that of that product. So I guess to answer, to kind of answer your question and, and where I start and finish with it, the product is really, really important. And we've seen really good examples of of where rights holders have made changes to the product, which have then led to growth in audiences and growth in all those things that I've just talked about, be it WSL and what the FA haven't done is they haven't just kind of taken a copycat approach to WSL as, as it exists in Premier League. The Six Nations, the Women's Six Nations moving into its own, into its own window the 100 is, is different and is a great example of creating a new product which has gender equality at its heart and creating a, a gender equal platform for women's and, and men's cricket. Women's Champions League, another great example, reformatting the women's, the women's Champions League from where it used to exist as a straight knockout format, centralising from, a, from a, a media rights perspective from the group stages, totally changing the product and therefore giving almost giving those competitions and those leagues a chance and we've got to get that bit right at the at the beginning yeah it goes from being perhaps what it's been for a few years which is an attitudinal change that is driving interest to something where you're saying well if if, if we're actually going to continue this momentum you at a certain point you've got to start thinking about viability um and you've got to start thinking about what it is that you actually have to sell for, for want of a want of a better expression. Absolutely. I think it links to another point of where we are in women's sport, where I, th- I feel like we've moved from women's sport being seen as a kind of pure CSR play and something that we should do to seeing women's sport as a really powerful purpose-led platform, particularly from the perspective of brands, but with a meaningful commercial return. And I'd probably say we can't we can't just be too nice about women's sport. There's lots of things that many people, myself included, feel passionately about about women's sport and the opportunities that that brings. But we also need to recognise the changes and the impact that driving commercial revenue has. Now, there's choices in that. There's a reach versus revenue conversation in terms of when you're thinking over a particular time period over the next three years, particularly when you're thinking about well, when, when you're thinking about in terms of distribution from a media rights perspective. But a phrase which I actually think is relevant from the, that Goldman Sachs were kind of synonymous with was long-term greedy. And because of the stage of development that women's sport is in, it, it's kind of tempting to get short-term greedy and to make changes and make decisions around women's sport, which may well be the best thing and generate the most visibility and generate the most audience growth in a particular property and the associated commercial revenue over the next three years or five years, but it may well not be the best thing to do from a perspective of a 10, 20, 30 year 
time horizon of growing women's sport because of where the gap that currently exists between women's sports and men's sport ultimately exists because of multiple decades of underinvestment. Mm-hmm. And we should always be mindful of that. Yeah. And I suppose the other the other side to it is, you know, that commercial development has to take place while a lot of the other parts are still being fitted into the cycle. So, you know, we there has been a change in, in kind of social perspectives on on women's sport and on women and young girls or girls and young women competing in sport. But there is still, even in that respect, that kind of decades old gap between men's and women's sport you know and and you still have to deal with the fact that there is a drop-off in participation for example for uh, young women heading into their late teens and all these kind of factors that that have created a kind of cliff edge historically and that are getting better but you kind of you can't just focus on development of a property that makes money in the short term as you say you've got to think about how you kind of keep things running through that cycle it's really it's a really interesting point you raised there around the drop-off of teenage girls participating in sport and there's wider social social consequences of 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 that um particularly around confidence levels relative between teenage boys and teenage girls i think you know it's well well researched and documented the benefits that exist of girls continuing to participate in sport through their teenage years beyond just the sort of more obvious physical health benefits now that should be seen absolutely and looked at absolutely in conjunction with what we're doing around developing the product and the marketing around around women's sport and not just taking a, a copycat approach across across women's and and men's just because it's worked in the men's doesn't mean it will work in the women's and actually the ability to to no longer just accept that that's what happens that girls stop playing part of sport in their teenage years and we have this big drop off and and that hampers the the development and the growth of women's sport. But actually really looking at well what are the things that we can do which will change that and why are what are the underlying reasons as to why girls are dropping out of sport at that age. And there's lots of there's you know a big factor is around perception, perceptions of what it means to be a girl that plays football, a woman that plays football and that that's not seen as something that's aspirational. And I think we're going a long way to starting to change that. And sponsors can play, brands can play a big role in that as to how it's perceived. You look at some of the UEFA partners for the Women's Euros, you know, my, many of them doing great, great work in that space. But you've got TikTok, you've got Adidas, you've got Nike, who all are marketing powerhouses in their own ways that can help to shift those perceptions. Mm. What's, the, what's the impact of that more widely, of, of not having um women stay in in competitive sport or in team sport beyond their late teens is that the thing that i've you know always been conscious of is how male dominated sport as a culture is and as an industry and as just an environment generally you know if you have fewer women interested in sport for longer than you have fewer women who go into leadership positions but also who backfill all the other positions that you have through an organization and quite often you might have an organization that has a female leader but has a very male staff and you still end up with the same set of biases and, uh, and problems as, as a consequence. How closely are those two things connected or is that another kind of cultural thing that needs to be worked on over time while the commercial uh, commercial development of women's sport is going on? I think for, you know, for, for sure it's, it's linked. Uh, I'm not aware of any specific research that creates that cause correlation, but 
undoubtedly it's almost what had become a male hobby or, or owned in the male domain effectively and whether you're talking about that from a fandom perspective from a participation perspective or or from a an industry perspective that that probably was was true you had sport and then you had women's sport and that right for girls and young women to see sport as absolutely their own and therefore the consequences that will have in terms of generating the pipeline the pathway of talent coming into the sports industry I think is is critical it was really interesting when I was um up with some colleagues at the opening game of the women's Euros in Old Trafford and, and one of my colleagues commented to me that he couldn't get over forget you know the audience itself was the is, is a very different makeup of audience but in hospitality he had never been in a hospitality environment that had so many women there and that wasn't you know, more or less a, a room full of a room full of men and he's been to a fair few sports hospitality events in his life and I just thought that's really interesting it's really interesting is then shifting what it means to you know I, I I hope that by the end of my career I don't spend most of the time being either the sole or the minority in a room I think that is starting to to change and I think for multiple reasons that's obviously and not just across sport across any industry that's clearly really important for decision making and for culture if we want if we truly want sport to be for the whole population as opposed to predominantly for 50% of the population then it's critical that the the voices in the room share that perspective and that desire for our audiences from a fandom and from a participation perspective that they reflect mm. those let's talk about um kind of introducing that sort of commercial robustness to um to women's sports properties um you know where at the, at the moment and we can look over a kind of uh, kind of 10 20 year span as well but at the moment where is the opportunity where's the advantage and, and where can women's sports competitions and, and leagues and, uh, and organisations drive value for, for partners? Yeah, so there is a huge opportunity there. We, we did a piece of research with Women's Sport Trust that was published last year that looked at the, the size of the women's sports industry in the, in the UK and estimated that at, at being 350 million to grow to 1 billion by by 2020 that's growing at almost double the the rate that we expect the the overall sports industry to to grow at so there's a huge opportunity there um and there's a mindset piece there around seeing women's sport and women's sport properties as an investment opportunity so much in the way as other industries will focus on where they see the next area of growth coming from we need to have that mindset in in sport I think it. I think it's it's fairly well accepted that women's sport is going to out, outpace men's sport in terms of in terms of growth. So there's a real opportunity to invest in there, despite the fact that at this stage, and in fact, indeed, even in ten years' time, women's sport is still going to be a smaller proportion of the overall sports industry. So there's opportunities there. There's some. There's lots of tailwinds in terms of the societal tailwinds. So although spoke about women's sport no longer being a, a CSR play, there is a really strong purpose-led platform, which when we think about sponsorship, a lot of brands, a lot of brands are really interested in in tapping into. One of the challenges and opportunities is how we go about monetizing that in the best way possible, which delivers 
fair market value for women's sports properties. One thing that we've spent a lot of time with rights holders talking about and advising on is the the question around unbundling women's rights from men's. And I certainly isn't to say that that is always the right thing to do because it's not always the right thing to do. However, there is certainly a case around the transparency of investment that's going into women's sport. So those figures that I quoted earlier around the 350 million of the value of, of women's sport in the UK, it's not straightforward to get to what that value is because when you have bundled deals where there's not transparency of the proportion of the rights fee that is for the women's team or competition or or league, then it comes down to a, a bit of an arbitrary decision. And often the brand doesn't actually know how much of their fee is going is going where, which makes it very difficult for them to drive an ROI against it or to be held accountable internally for driving an ROI against that investment. So to give an example, if a if a so one of the reasons for not unbundling often that we that we hear is that there's that may result in challenges around selling the men's property because more and more for brands it becomes important for them to be demonstrating and to have gender equality across their sponsorship portfolio. Now sometimes that's really genuine and sometimes that's more of a hygiene factor. But if that's the case, what is the true value of the women's rights within that bundled package? Is it 50% because the deal wouldn't have happened without them? Is it just the relative media value of the women's rights versus the men's, which which overlooks some of the IP, the IP value? Or is it the delta between that offer and what the next best men's men's only offer would be, which you may well not know. So there's a lack of transparency and a lack of real often that results in the women's rights actually being kind of undervalued in terms of what's attributed to them. So in, if you're you're kind of representing a, a women's sports body or a league and you're you're kind of making your pitch, um what are what are the metrics that you would recommend people focus on in order to drive home that kind of uh that potential and and that that differentiation that you you might be able to find the answer to that question is different depending on which property it is and it's actually a trap that we can find people do fall into around women's sport treating it all in a homogenous way much like men's sport we sell every single men's sport rights holder that we represent we sell in a unique way relative to them and that applies across women's sport obviously there's some underlying themes around why to invest in in women's sport, but ultimately it's sold on in a unique way. So there will be some women's sports properties where the media value is really something which is is a reason to buy. And there'll be other sports women's sports properties where the media value isn't the key reason to buy. So we'll adjust what data points are relevant based on both the property that we're selling and also really importantly, what the brand wants to get out of that partnership and be led in a brand first way by what their objectives are. Mm. And I mean, similar question is probably get a similar answer, but kind of on a practical perspective in terms of what, what these properties are actually doing for their partners, for their brand partners or their media partners, what are some of the things that you would recommend in order to demonstrate that you are taking this seriously and taking, you know, the commercial viability and the, 
the the future development of of what you're doing seriously yeah i think this relates back to the other question the growth is a really important piece people are buying into something that is is growing so you want to demonstrate that both through being able to demonstrate that through data but also being able to demonstrate that through behaviors within the rights holder so the things that are often important are around being able to demonstrate that there's a a strong strategy behind the growth of of women's sport numerous rights holders that we work with are excellent at at demonstrating at demonstrating that and that there's key people in charge of driving through that strategy so often brands are bought into the fact that they are part of the story of growth so they want to be able to see and often support into various aspects strands and pillars of that of that strategy in fact with one particular rights holder we have looked at their strategy and developed pillars for commercial partners to have effective ownership of where they have ring fenced investment that goes into driving that particular pillar of the strategy forwards another thing that is an opportunity and often spoken about opportunity and reality sometimes really harder to achieve but nonetheless still there is the flexibility that exists around women's sports properties or the ability for there to be more flexibility around women's sports properties than their men's counterparts because of the stage of development that they're in. So often there can be a slightly more bespoke or an innovative approach taken in women's sports properties than there is with men's and, and you know, brands really love and buy into, into that. There are a couple of things that, that we see, but really the focus and, and matching that brand's commitment. So whether it's a whether it's a brand or whether it's a broadcaster who have invested into a women's sports property and in all likelihood you know, the the fee that they're paying probably reflect, reflects and if the if whoever's selling it has done a good job will definitely reflect the future growth of that of that property they want to see that commitment matched by the rights holder um, and, and, and demonstrating that is, is really important. Um, I want to talk in a sec about some of the, uh, some of the rights holders who you think are, are getting this right or are on the right track. But first of all, what are, what are some common mistakes that, that are made, either that you've noticed through observation or perhaps more valuably, if, there, if there's anything that kind of, any theories that you guys have tested at two circles that, that haven't panned out or, you know, any misconceptions that people might have had a couple of years ago that you think uh, have been challenged and and might be, you know, approaches might be changing as a a result? Look, I think there's, I'm sure all of us will continue to learn and and change the way that we change the way that we do things as, as women's sports grow, women's sports continue to, to grow. I think one of the, going back to my point before, one of the, the mistakes can be to just take a, copy and paste approach to the men's game which isn't necessarily the best thing for for growing the women's side of the game and to not really investing both time and money into into that development is probably the the biggest things and i think and i think the other one is to is to underestimate i will always be optimistic and bullish on the opportunities that exist and the the growth potential of of women's sport, and I think sometimes that can be that can be underestimated. Let's kind of 
single out some good practice as well. Well, who who are some of the organisations who you think are are getting this and are really setting an example? Look, I think it'd be amiss of me to not talk about one of our biggest clients who are very much in focus at the moment with the Women's Euros going on. And I think a lot of credit has to go to UEFA and and the FA and the LOS for the tournament that they're putting on at, at the moment. But to focus in on, on UEFA for a moment, it was back in 2017 when UEFA decided to unbundle women's commercial rights and did so alongside the development of the women's strategy significant investment into the women's into the women's game into the we play strong marketing platform which is is aimed at 13 to 25 year old girls and young women um touching on what we talked about earlier it changes perceptions around what it means to be to be a women's footballer and it starts to move women's football into a lifestyle space and takes a very unique approach it's something that UEFA do on the women's side that they don't do on the men's side so investing in something that that is not is the opposite of the copycat approach that we we spoke about we then looked at the women's rights and again didn't just package them in and uefa were completely supportive of this in the way that the men's rights are sold so the partners of uefa women's football are partners across the women's champions league and the women's euros the youth competitions futsal and we play strong um, so comprehensively across European women's football, um, and I think now we t- but that decision to unbundle isn't isn't uncommon. We see multiple rights holders doing it in in different in different ways, but it's very very common. But back in twenty seventeen, it was certainly more of a risk and and was unproven, and UEFA were completely and have always been completely committed to it and have stood behind that decision um you know despite having long-standing partners on on the men's side who who clearly play pay large sums of of money and if you look at the partnership portfolio that is there at the women's at the women's euros both from a uefa global partner level and also the los partners that decision has paid off in in dividends mm. um <clears throat> sorry um where, where's the um I think another where, example sorry. just to talk about oh, <clears throat> oh sorry yeah. no go ahead i was going on a, on a different on, on a totally different kind of part of the stage of the journey um we've been doing a piece of work uh with british and irish lions recently on a feasibility study into um, a women's uh, lines lines team and, and tour, and that kind of right at the at the other stage. And I think the full credit to to British and Irish Lions and Raw London who have supported this piece of work is about getting it right from the beginning. And that that has pulled in all different perspectives from stakeholders, commercial through to pure performance. Um, I've seen multiple stakeholders involved in in anything that is a, a GB or a British and Irish Lions level, um, but really with an attitude of we want to get this right from the start, and it's worth the investment in time and resource in order to in order to do that, and to, to kind of repeat the point again, not just saying well this is what we do for men's lions, so therefore this is what we'll do for for women's lions. And we have effectively 
I take the box, take, take the box with that. Yeah. Um, just to, to kind of take us towards a close here, what, what do you think, you know, we talked a bit about the, uh, the way that the professionalization of women's sport has, has brought some sports to the fore in this country and, and, um, and in markets around the world. Um, but what, what do you see as being some of the fundamental tests that are coming up, um, to the development of women's sport? Audience growth is at the heart, is absolutely at the heart <clears throat> of it. We, we're working with, with various leagues across Europe, actually, around the growth of audiences in domestic, domestic leagues. Um, and that's going to be key. So, so we, need to, we need to start to move women's sport away from these big spikes and peaks that we see across World Cups and, and, and Euros and Champions League finals and, and um, the, even, even the, the 100 to it being a more always-on audience who are engaging with with women's sport now that links back to the to the product point because there is a big difference between going to watch England play at Brighton or at Old Trafford or at Wembley to going and watching a WSL game it's a very different spectator experience on the on the whole and bridging that gap between those big spikes that we see at the moment in terms of media coverage and and audiences around women's sports events to that becoming a sustainable year-round audience engagement is the the big challenge and the big opportunity and mm. um, where is um you know you, you you've talked a fair bit about unbundling uh, the opportunity that creates to for women's sports rights holders to tell their own story um or for different kinds of brands to get involved different kind of media different kinds of media companies to get involved and, and do that with them um but where's the big space to to innovate for women's sport to not just to the benefit of their partners but also to give their fans um most importantly a different experience it's in the fact of of those properties being less developed so there's a real really a moment in time to be able to make decisions now that's not always straightforward to do because a lot of women's sport when we look at the certainly the the big professional sports in this country there are structures in place that have been in place for decades and and ultimately have been in place for the men's game which can make innovation tougher because there's established ways of of doing things but ultimately creating just as as we would if we were starting from scratch how do we create the right products and market them in the right way for consumers it's the way we'd approach any any business if you were setting up a business you'd understand who your target audience is and then you would create a product or products and market them in a way that is specific to that audience. There's good examples of that. You know, the 100 is a really good example of, of a competition that has started with who is the audience that we're trying to target? What does the product, what does every element of that need to look like, which is going to achieve us reaching that, that core audience? And so it's an opportunity, again, it's an opportunity in, in women's sport to 
to take that approach. And finally, I mean, how fundamentally is the growth of women's sport going to change the sports industry? How important a story is this for sport? in the next decade or so. I mean I'm clearly biased. My view is that it's my, my view is that it's as we have more of these moments which make people sit up and take notice, it will become bigger and bigger and ultimately also revenue talks. So as investment as it is now starts to come in to women's sport, that causes more and more people to to take attention, to to, to give attention to it. And it's a really, we have a huge opportunity over the next 10 years to accelerate that growth of, of women's sport. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there for this edition of the Sports Pro Podcast. So I will say thank you to Annie Panther. Thanks, Owen. It's been an honour to join you for your last Sports Pro Podcast. So thank you. Thank you for that. And thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, thanks especially to all of you for listening not just today but over the last few years um, I'm getting to the point where I'm beginning to wish that I had prepared something but this is it for me as host of the Sports Pro podcast this is it for me at Sports Pro after about 12 years in in various capacities what can I say I'm enormously grateful for the opportunity basically my first job in media and what a job it has turned out to be it's been extraordinary to watch the way that sport has developed in all kinds of uh, directions but it's been really quite something to see how sports pros developed in that time too. And it's really quite an exciting time to be leaving and to, to see it from the outside, what it's going to turn into. But yeah, thank you to all my colleagues um, as well. They will continue to guide you through the big issues in the sports industry, not just here on the podcast, but across all of their events and, and media platforms in the time ahead. Maybe we'll catch each other again. Uh, but until then, all the best. The Sports Pro podcast is published by Sports Pro Media, and you'll be hearing from everybody else very soon. Bye bye.